Chapter Six, Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is done by Kristen Lemoyne, GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Six. To buy his favour I extend this friendship, if he will take it, so, if not, adieu, and for my love I pray you wrong me not. Merchant of Venice As the palmer, lighted by a domestic with a torch, passed through the intricate combination of apartments of this large and irregular mansion, the cup-bearer coming behind him whispered in his ear that if he had no objection to a cup of good mead in his apartment, there were many domestics in that family who would gladly hear the news he had brought from the Holy Land, and particularly that which concerned the knight of Ivanhoe. Wamba presently appeared to urge the same request, observing that a cup after midnight was worth three after curfew. Without disputing a maxim urged by such grave authority, the palmer thanked them for their courtesy, but observed that he had included in his religious vow an obligation never to speak in the kitchen on matters which were prohibited in the hall. "'That vow,' said Wamba to the cup-bearer, "'would scarce suit a serving-man.' The cup-bearer shrugged up his shoulders in displeasure. "'I thought to have lodged him in the solaire chamber,' said he. "'But since he is so unsocial to Christians, e'en let him take the next stall to Isaac the Jews.' "'And Wold,' said he to the torch-bearer, "'Carry the pilgrim to the southern cell. I give you good night,' he added. "'Sir Palmer, with small thanks for short courtesy.' "'Good night, and our lady's benison,' said the palmer with composure, and his guide moved forward. In a small antechamber into which several doors opened, and which was lighted by a small iron lamp, they met a second interruption from the waiting-maid of Rowena, who, saying in a tone of authority, that her mistress desired to speak with the palmer, took the torch from the hand of Anwald, and, bidding him await her return, made a sign to the palmer to follow. Apparently he did not think it proper to decline this invitation, as he had done the former, for though his gesture indicated some surprise at the summons, he obeyed it without answer or remonstrance. A short passage and an ascent of seven steps, each of which was composed of a solid beam of oak, led him to the apartment of the Lady Rowena, the rude magnificence of which corresponded to the respect which was paid to her by the lord of the mansion. The walls were covered with embroidered hangings, on which different coloured silks, interwoven with gold and silver threads, had been employed, with all the art of which the age was capable, to represent the sports of hunting and hawking. The bed was adorned with the same rich tapestry, and surrounded with curtains dyed with purple. The seats had also their stained coverings, and one which was higher than the rest was accommodated with a footstool of ivory, curiously carved. No fewer than four silver candelabras, holding great waxen torches, served to illuminate this apartment. Yet let not modern beauty envy the magnificence of a Saxon princess. 
the walls of the apartment were so ill-finished and so full of crevices that the rich hangings shook to the night blast and in despite of a sort of screen intended to protect them from the wind the flame of the torches streamed sideways into the air like the unfurled pennon of a chieftain magnificence there was with some rude attempt at taste but of comfort there was little and being unknown it was unmissed the lady rowena with three of her attendants standing at her back and arranging her hair ere she lay down to rest was seated in the sort of throne already mentioned and looked as if born to exact general homage the pilgrim acknowledged her claim to it by a low genuflection rise palmer she said graciously the defender of the absent has a right to favorable reception from all who value truth and honor manhood she then said to her train retire excepting only elgitha i would speak with this holy pilgrim the maidens without leaving the apartment retired to its further extremity and sat down on a small bench against the wall where they remained mute as statues though at such a distance that their whispers could not have interrupted the conversation of their mistress pilgrim said the lady after a moment's pause during which she seemed uncertain how to address him you this night mentioned a name i mean she said with a degree of effort the name of ivanhoe in the walls whereby nature and kindred it should have sounded most acceptably and yet such is the perverse course of fate that of many whose hearts must have throbbed at the sound i only dare ask you where and in what condition you left him of whom you spoke we heard that having remained in palestine on account of his impaired health after the departure of the english army he had experienced the persecution of the french faction to whom the templars are known to be attached i know little of the knight of ivanhoe answered the palmer with a troubled voice i would i knew him better since you lady are interested in his fate he hath i believe surmounted the persecution of his enemies in palestine and is on the eve of returning to england where you lady must know better than i what is his chance of happiness the lady rowena sighed deeply and asked more particularly when the knight of ivanhoe might be expected in his native country and whether he would not be exposed to great dangers by the road. On the first point, the palmer professed ignorance. On the second, he said that the voyage might be safely made by the way of Venice and Genoa, and from thence through France to England. Ivanhoe, he said, was so well acquainted with the language and manners of the French, that there was no fear of his incurring any hazard during that part of his travels. "'Would to God,' said the Lady Rowena, "'he were here safely arrived, "'and able to bear arms in the approaching tourney "'in which the chivalry of this land "'are expected to display their address and valour. "'Should Athelstane of Coningsburg obtain the prize, "'Ivanhoe is like to hear evil tidings "'when he reaches England. "'How looked he, stranger, when you last saw him? "'Had disease laid her hand heavy upon his strength and comeliness?' He was 
darker,' said the palmer, "'and thinner than when he came from Cyprus in the train of Coeur de Lyon, "'and care seemed to sit heavily on his brow. "'But I approached not his presence, because he is unknown to me.' "'He will,' said the lady. "'I fear find little in his native land to clear those clouds from his countenance.' "'Thanks, good pilgrim, for your information concerning the companion of my childhood. "'Maidens,' she said, "'draw near. "'Offer the sleeping-cup to this holy man, whom I will no longer detain from repose.' "'One of the maidens presented a silver cup containing a rich mixture of wine and spice, "'which Rowena barely put to her lips. "'It was then offered to the palmer, who, after a low obeisance, tasted a few drops.' "'Accept this alms, friend,' continued the lady, offering a piece of gold, "'in acknowledgment of thy painful travail, and of the shrines thou hast visited.' The palmer received the boon with another low reverence, and followed Elgitha out of the apartment. In the anteroom he found his attendant, Anwald, who, taking the torch from the hand of the waiting-maid, conducted him with more haste than ceremony, to an exterior and ignoble part of the building, where a number of small apartments, or rather cells, served for sleeping-places in the lower order of domestics, and to strangers of mean degree. "'In which of these sleeps the Jew?' said the pilgrim. "'The unbelieving dog,' answered Anwald, "'kennels in the cell next your holiness. St. Dunstan, how it must be scraped and cleansed ere it be again fit for a Christian!' "'And where sleeps Gert the swineherd?' said the stranger. "'Gert,' replied the bondsman, "'sleeps in the cell on your right, as the Jew in that to your left. You serve to keep the child of circumcision separate from the abomination of his tribe. You might have occupied a more honourable place had you accepted Oswald's invitation.' "'It is as well as it is,' said the palmer. The company, even of a Jew, can hardly spread contamination through an oaken partition. So saying, he entered the cabin allotted to him, and taking the torch from the domestic's hand, thanked him, and wished him good night. Having shut the door of his cell, he placed the torch in a candlestick made of wood, and looked around his sleeping apartment, the furniture of which was the most simple kind. It consisted of a rude wooden stool, and still ruder hutch or bed-frame, stuffed with clean straw, and accommodated with two or three sheepskins by way of bedclothes. The palmer, having extinguished his torch, threw himself, without taking off any part of his clothes, on this rude couch, and slept, or at least retained his recumbent posture, till the earliest sunbeams found their way through the little grated window, which served at once to admit both air and light to his uncomfortable cell. He then started up, and after repeating his matins and adjusting his dress as he left it, and entered that of Isaac the Jew, lifting the latch as gently as he could. The inmate was lying in troubled slumber upon a couch, similar to that upon which the palmer himself had passed the night. Such parts of his dress as the Jew had laid aside on the preceding evening were disposed carefully around his person as if to prevent the hazard of their being carried off during his slumbers. There was a trouble on his brow, amounting almost to agony. His hands and arms moved convulsively, 
as if struggling with the nightmare. And besides several ejaculations in Hebrew, the following were distinctly heard in the Norman English, or mixed language of the country. For the sake of the God of Abraham, spare an unhappy old man. I am poor, I am penniless. Should your irons wrench my limbs asunder, I could not gratify you. The palmer awaited not the end of the Jew's vision, but stirred him with his pilgrim's staff. The touch probably associated, as is usual, with some of the apprehensions excited by his dream. For the old man started up, his grey hair standing almost erect upon his head, and huddling some part of his garment about him while he held the detached pieces with the tenacious grasp of a falcon, he fixed upon the palmer his keen black eyes, expressive of wild surprise and of bodily apprehension. "'Fear nothing from me, Isaac,' said the palmer. "'I come as your friend.' "'The God of Israel requite you,' said the Jew, greatly relieved. "'I dreamed—but oh, Father Abraham be praised. It was but a dream.' Then, collecting himself, he added in his usual tone, "'And what may it be your pleasure to want at so early an hour with the poor Jew?' "'It is to tell you,' said the palmer, "'that if you leave not this mansion instantly, and travel not with some haste, your journey may prove a dangerous one.' "'Holy Father,' said the Jew, "'whom could it interest to endanger so poor a wretch as I am?' "'The purpose you can best guess,' said the pilgrim. "'But rely on this, that when the Templar crossed the hall yesternight, "'he spoke to his Mussulman slaves in the Saracen language, "'which I well understand, and charged them this morning to watch the journey of the Jew, "'to seize upon him when at a convenient distance from the mansion, "'and to conduct him to the castle of Philippe de Malvoisin, or to that Reginald Frontbeuf. It is impossible to describe the extremity of terror which seized upon the Jew at this information, and seemed at once to overpower his whole faculties. His arms fell down to his sides, and his head drooped on his breast. His knees bent under his weight. Every nerve and muscle of his frame seemed to collapse and lose its energy, and he sunk at the foot of the palmer not in the fashion of one who intentionally stoops, kneels, or prostrates himself to excite compassion, but like a man borne down on all sides by the pressure of some invisible force which crushes him to the earth without the power of resistance. "'Holy God of Abraham!' was his first exclamation, folding and elevating his wrinkled hands, but without raising his grey head from the pavement. O oh, holy Moses, O oh, blessed Aaron, the dream is not dreamed for naught, and the vision cometh not in vain. I feel their irons already tear my sinews. I feel the rack pass over my body like the saws, and harrows, and axes of iron over the men of Rabbah, and of the cities of the children of Ammon. Stand up, Isaac, and hearken to me, said the palmer who viewed the extremity of his distress with a compassion in which contempt was largely mingled. You have cause for your terror, considering how your brethren have been used in order to extort from them their hordes, both by princes and nobles. But stand up, I say, and I will point out to you the means of escape. Leave this mansion instantly while its inmates sleep sound after the night's revel. 
I will guide you by the secret paths of the forest, known as well to me as to any forester that ranges it, and I will not leave you till you are under safe conduct of some chief or baron going to the tournament, whose good will you have probably the means of securing. As the years of Isaac received the hopes of escape which this speech intimated, he began gradually, and inch by inch, as it were, to raise himself up from the ground, until he fairly rested upon his knees, throwing back his long grey hair and beard, and fixing his keen black eyes upon the palmer's face, with a look expressive at once of hope and fear, not unmingled with suspicion. But when he heard the concluding part of the sentence, his original terror appeared to revive in full force, and he dropped once more on his face, exclaiming, I possess the means of securing good will. Alas! There is but one road to the favour of a Christian, and how can the poor Jew find it, whom extortions have already reduced to the misery of Lazarus? Then, as if suspicion had overpowered his other feelings, he suddenly exclaimed, For the love of God, young man, betray me not, for the sake of the great Father who made us all, Jew as well as Gentile, Israelite and Ishmaelite, do me no treason. I have not means to secure the good will of a Christian beggar, were he raiding it at a single penny. As he spoke these last words, he raised himself, and grasped the palmer's mantle with a look of the most earnest entreaty. The pilgrim extricated himself as if it were contamination in the touch. Wert thou loaded with all the wealth of thy tribe, he said, what interest have I to injure thee? In this dress I am vowed to poverty, nor do I change it for aught save a horse and a coat of mail. Yet think not that I care for thy company, or propose myself advantage by it. Remain here if thou wilt, Cedric the Saxon may protect thee. Alas, said the Jew, he will not let me travel in his train. Saxon or Norman will be equally ashamed of the poor Israelite, and to travel by myself through the domains of Philip de Malvoisin, and Reginald Frontbeuf. Good youth, I will go with you. Let us haste. Let us gird up our loins. Let us flee. Here is thy staff. Why wilt thou tarry? I tarry not, said the pilgrim, giving way to the urgency of his companion. But I must secure the means of leaving this place. Follow me. He led the way to the adjoining cell, which, as the reader is apprised, was occupied by Gert, the swineherd. Arise, Gert, said the pilgrim, arise quickly, undo the postern gate, and let out the Jew and me. Gert, whose occupation, though now held so mean, gave him as much consequence in Saxon England as that of Eumaeus in Ithaca, was offended at the familiar and commanding tone assumed by the palmer. The Jew leaving Rotherwood, said he, raising himself on his elbow and looking superciliously at him, without quitting his pallet and travelling in company with the palmer to boot. "'I should as soon have dreamt,' said Wamba, who entered the apartment at the instant, "'of his stealing away with a gammon of bacon.' "'Nevertheless,' said Gurth, again lying down his head on the wooden log which served him for a pillow, "'both Jew and Gentile must be content to abide the opening of the great gate. We suffer no visitors to depart by stealth at these unseasonable hours.' "'Nevertheless,' said the pilgrim, in a commanding tone. You will not, I think, refuse me that favour. 
So saying, he stooped over the bed of the recumbent swineherd, and whispered something in his ear in Saxon. Gurth started up as if electrified. The pilgrim, raising his finger in an attitude, as if to express caution, added, Gurth, beware! Thou art wont to be prudent. I say, undo the postern. Thou shalt know more anon. With hasty alacrity Gurth obeyed him, while Wamba and the Jew followed, both wondering at the sudden change in the swineherd's demeanour. "'My mule! my mule!' said the Jew, as soon as they stood without the postern. "'Fetch him his mule,' said the pilgrim, "'and, hearest thou, let me have another, that I may bear him company till he is beyond these parts. I will return it safely to some of Cedric's train at Ashby. "'And do thou—' he whispered, the rest in Gurth's ear. "'Willingly, most willingly, shall it be done,' said Gurth, and instantly departed to execute the commission. "'I wish I knew,' said Wamba, when his comrade's back was turned, "'to what do palmers learn in the Holy Land?' "'To say our orisons, fool,' answered the pilgrim, "'to repent our sins and to mortify ourselves with fastings, vigils, and long prayers.' "'Something more potent than that,' answered the jester. "'For when would repentance or prayer make Gurth do a courtesy or a fasting or vigil persuade him to lend you a mule? I trow, you might as well have told his favourite black boar of thy vigils and penance, and wouldst have gotten as civil an answer.' "'Go to,' said the pilgrim. "'Thou art but a Saxon fool.' "'Thou sayest well,' said the jester. Had I been born a Norman, as I think thou art, I would have had luck on my side, and been next door to a wise man. At this moment Gurth appeared on the opposite side of the moat with the mules. The travellers crossed the ditch upon a drawbridge of only two planks' breadth, the narrowness of which was matched with the straightness of the postern, and with a little wicket in the exterior palisade which gave access to the forest. No sooner had they reached the mules than the Jew, with hasty and trembling hands, secured behind the saddle a small bag of blue buckram, which he took from under his cloak, containing, as he muttered, a change of raiment, only a change of raiment. Then, getting upon the animal with more alacrity and haste than could have been anticipated from his years, he lost no time in so disposing of the skirts of his gabardine, as to conceal completely from observation the burden which he had thus deposited en croupe. The pilgrim mounted with more deliberation, reaching as he departed his hand to Gurth, who kissed it with the utmost possible veneration. The swineherd stood gazing after the travellers until they were lost under the boughs of the forest path, when he was disturbed from his reverie by the voice of Wamba. "'Knowest thou,' said the jester, "'my good friend Gurth, that thou art strangely courteous and—' most unwontedly pious on this summer morning. I would I were a black prior or a barefoot palmer, to avail myself of thy unwonted zeal and courtesy. Certes, I would make more out of it than a kiss of the hand. Thou art no fool thus far, Wamba, answered Gurth, though thou arguest from appearances, and the wisest of us can do no more. But it is time to look after my charge." So saying, he turned back to the mansion, attended by the jester. Meanwhile, the travellers continued to press on their journey, with a despatch which argued the extremity of the Jew's fears, since persons at his age are seldom fond of rapid motion. 
The palmer, to whom every path and outlet in the wood appeared to be familiar, led the way through the most devious paths, and more than once excited anew the suspicion of the Israelite that he intended to betray him into some ambuscade of his enemies. His doubts might have been indeed pardoned, for except perhaps the flying fish, there was no race existing on the earth, in the air, or the waters, who were the object of such an unintermitting general and relentless persecution as the Jews of this period. Upon the slightest and most unreasonable pretenses, as well as upon accusations the most absurd and groundless, their persons and property were exposed to every turn of popular fury. The Norman, Saxon, Dane, and Briton, however adverse these races were to each other, contended which should look with the greatest detestation upon a people whom it was accounted a point of religion to hate, to revile, to despise, to plunder, and to persecute. The kings of the Norman race, and the independent nobles who followed their example in all acts of tyranny, maintained against this devoted people a persecution of a more regular, calculated, and self-interested kind. It is a well-known story of King John that he confined a wealthy Jew in one of the royal castles, and daily caused one of his teeth to be torn out, until, when the jaw of the unhappy Israelite was half disfurnished, he consented to pay a large sum which it was the tyrant's object to extort from him. The little ready money which was in the country was chiefly in possession of this persecuted people, and the nobility hesitated not to follow the example of their sovereign in wringing it from them by every species of oppression, and even personal torture. Yet the passive courage inspired by the love of gain induced the Jews to dare the various evils to which they were subjected. In consideration of the immense profits which they were enabled to realize in a country naturally so wealthy as England. In spite of every kind of discouragement, and even of the special court of taxations already mentioned, called the Jews' Exchequer, erected for the very purpose of despoiling and distressing them, the Jews increased, multiplied, and accumulated huge sums, which they transferred from one hand to another by means of bills of exchange an invention for which commerce is said to be indebted to them, and which enabled them to transfer their wealth from land to land, that when threatened with oppression in one country, their treasure might be secured in another. The obstinacy and avarice of the Jews being thus in a measure placed in opposition to the fanaticism and tyranny of those under whom they lived, seemed to increase in proportion to the persecution with which they were visited, and the immense wealth they usually acquired in commerce, while it frequently placed them in danger, was at other times used to extend their influence, and to secure them a certain degree of protection. On these terms they lived, and their character influenced accordingly was watchful, suspicious, and timid, yet obstinate, uncomplying, and skilful in evading the dangers to which they were exposed. When the travellers had pushed on at a rapid rate through many devious paths, the palmer at length broke silence. "'That large decayed oak,' he said, "'mark the boundaries over which Franteboeuf claims authority. We are long since far from those of Malvoisin. There is now no fear of pursuit.' 
"'May the wheels of their chariots be taken off,' said the Jew, "'like those of the host of Pharaoh, that they may drive heavily. "'But leave me not, good pilgrim. "'Think but of that fierce and savage Templar with his Saracen slaves. "'They will regard neither territory nor manor nor lordship.' "'Our road,' said the palmer, "'should here separate.' for it beseems not men of my character and thine to travel together longer than needs must be. Besides, what succour couldst thou have from me, a peaceful pilgrim, against two armed heathens? O good youth, answered the Jew, thou canst defend me, and I know thou wouldst. Poor as I am, I will requite it, not with money, for money so help me my father Abraham. I have none, but— Money and recompense— said the palmer, interrupting him. I have already said I require naught of thee. Guide thee I can, and it may be, even in some sort, defend thee, since to protect a Jew against a Saracen can scarce be accounted unworthy of a Christian. Therefore I, Jew, will see thee safe under some fitting escort. We are now not far from the town of Sheffield, where thou mayest easily find many of thy tribe with whom to take refuge. The blessing of Jacob be upon thee, good youth, said the Jew. In Sheffield I can harbour with my kinsman Zareth, and find some means of travelling forth with safety. Be it so, said the palmer. At Sheffield then we part, and half an hour's riding will bring us in sight of that town. The half-hour was spent in perfect silence on both parts, the pilgrim perhaps disdaining to address the Jew, except in case of absolute necessity, and the Jew not presuming to force a conversation with a person whose journey to the Holy Sepulchre gave a sort of sanctity to his character. They paused on the top of a gently rising bank, and the pilgrim, pointing to the town of Sheffield, which lay beneath them, repeated the words, "'Here, then, we part.' "'Not till you have had the poor Jew's thanks,' said Isaac, "'for I presume not to ask you to go with me to my kinsman Zareth's, who might aid me with some means of repaying your good offices.' "'I have already said,' answered the pilgrim, that I desire no recompense, if among the huge list of thy debtors thou wilt, for my sake, spare the gives and the dungeon to some unhappy Christian who stands in thy danger, I shall hold this morning service to thee well bestowed. Stay, stay, said the Jew, laying hold of his garment. Something would I do more than this, something for thyself. God knows the Jew is poor, yes, Isaac is the beggar of his tribe. But forgive me, should I guess what thou most lackest at this moment. If thou wert to guess truly, said the palmer, it is what thou canst not supply, wert thou as wealthy as thou sayest thou art poor. As I say, echoed the Jew, oh, believe it, I say but the truth. I am a plundered, indebted, distressed man. Hard hands have wrung from me my goods, my money, my ships, and all that I possessed. Yet I can tell thee what thou lackest, and, it may be, supply it, too. Thy wish even now is for a horse and armour. The palmer started, and turned suddenly towards the Jew. What fiend prompted that guess? said he hastily. No matter, said the Jew, smiling, so that it be a true one, and, as I can guess thy want, so I can supply it. "'But consider,' said the palmer, "'my character. 
my dress, my vow. I know you Christians, replied the Jew, and that the noblest of you will take the staff and sandal in superstitious penance, and walk afoot to visit the graves of dead men. Blaspheme not, Jew, said the pilgrim sternly. Forgive me, said the Jew, I spoke rashly, but there dropped words from me last night and this morning that, like sparks from flint, showed the metal within, and in the bosom of that palmer's gown is hidden a knight's chain and spurs of gold. They glanced as you stooped over my bed in the morning. The pilgrim could not forbear smiling. Were thy garments searched by as curious an eye, Isaac? said he. What discoveries might not be made? No more of that, said the Jew, changing color, and drawing forth his writing materials in haste, as if to stop the conversation, he began to write upon a piece of paper, which he supported on the top of his yellow cap, without dismounting from his mule. When he had finished he delivered the scroll, which was in the Hebrew character, to the pilgrim, saying, In the town of Leicester all men know the rich Jew, Kirjath Jairam of Lombardy. Give him this scroll. He hath on sale six Milan harnesses, the worst would suit a crowned head, ten goodly steeds, the worst might mount a king, were he to do battle for his throne. Of these he will give thee thy choice, with everything else that can furnish thee forth for the tournament. When it is over, thou wilt return them safely, unless thou shouldst have wherewith to pay their value to the owner. But Isaac, said the pilgrim, smiling, dost thou know that in these sports the arms and steed of the knight, who is on horse, are forfeit to his victor? Now I may be unfortunate, and so lose what I cannot replace or repay. The Jew looked somewhat astounded at this possibility, but, collecting his courage, he replied hastily, No, no, no! It is impossible, I will not think so. The blessing of our father will be upon thee, thy lance will be powerful as the rod of Moses. So saying, he was turning his mule's head away, when the palmer, in his turn, took hold of his gabardine. Nay, but Isaac, thou knowest not all the risk. The steed may be slain, the armor injured, for I will spare neither horse nor man. Besides, those of thy tribe give nothing for nothing. Something there must be paid for their use. The Jew twisted himself in the saddle, like a man in a fit of the colic but his better feelings predominated over those which were most familiar to him. "'I care not,' he said. "'I care not. Let me go. If there is damage, it will cost you nothing. If there is usage money, Kirjath Jairam will forgive it for the sake of his kinsman Isaac.' "'Fare thee well. Yet hark thee, good youth,' said he, turning about. "'Thrust thyself not too forward into this vain hurly-burly.' I speak not for endangering the steed and coat of armor, but for the sake of thine own life and limbs. Gramercy for thy caution, said the palmer, again smiling. I will use thy courtesy frankly, and it will go hard with me, but I will requite it. They parted, and took different roads for the town of Sheffield. End of chapter 6